Question show time. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are on my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just take a second, just write it down in the comments. I will gather a bunch of them up and I will answer them here. Hope you're enjoying the uh, snow here in Canada. Uh, I thought we had made it through, but nope, apparently we got part of this uh, big polar vortex, so enjoy. All right, let's get into the questions. Oh, and stick around. We've got another special guest answerer uh, for the end. So stick around. All right, let's get into it. The straight path. Think about it. You can fix Mars, then why not fix beautiful Earth? Do you see how stupid these ideas about Mars is? Do you realize how much money is wasted by this? I think it's really important to distinguish the, the difference between thinking about things and doing things, right? So for example, here on Earth, like we can think of ways to fix the Earth. Let's stop releasing uh, greenhouse gases and, and leading to global warming and climate change. Let's stop uh, producing the pollution that's going into our rivers. Let's cut down on the kinds of agriculture that is destroying our topsoil. Let's stop burning down the rainforest. Like I just listed four or five things that we could do that would dramatically improve the environment of the earth. And and literally, that's as much as people have spent thinking about Mars. They're like, wow, I wonder if we could block the solar wind to make Mars more habitable in the future. No one's gone to Mars. No one's tried this. No one's built the infrastructure to do this. And the reality, of course, is that if we can't get our act together here on Earth, there's no way we're going to be able to make any dramatic difference on Mars. The only way that we're going to be able to have the technology in the future to be able to make any change on Mars is if we sort out how to, how to act as one planet to be able to protect what is the best place in the universe, the Earth. And I think the other thing that's really important is that we think about space as a way for us to take the activities and the actions that we do here on Earth and put them into a place where we're not living in our own pollution. I mention this fairly often now, right? That here on Earth, we are, we are living, we are, we are creating pollution, and then we're living in it, and we are making the environment of the Earth worse. While there is a universe, there is 46 billion light years in all directions for what we know is essentially empty, that we can fill with our garbage if we need to harvest the resources who knows what's out there and the point is is that by going to space we will be able to protect the earth and make it just do the one thing that earth does that no other place in the universe does and that is be a place for life for diversity for creatures for rivers for oceans for trees to have all these things that we just can't have anywhere else in the universe so that's one of the biggest reasons to go to space Chamad Thassara. Fraser Kane, how are you doing all these activities? I know it looks like I do a lot of things, and I do a lot of things, right? We've got our question show, we've got our regular shows, I host the Weekly Space Hangout, I'm co-host on Astronomy Cast, uh, we do the virtual star parties, uh, we just finished off a book, I am the publisher of Universe Today, and I lead a team there. But the most important thing to understand is that I don't do all this stuff alone, I have a team. You just see my hear me here on video, but of course, each one of these videos is edited and, and produced by Chad Weber, who is phenomenal, uh, and takes time, hours, every week, to gather together all of the images and videos and edit these videos together and normalize all the sound. And he's also, uh, right now, he's not doing the work on Astronomy Cast, but he had been, and he does the question shows. So this would not be possible without Chad. My wife uh, sets up the camera. She's a photographer uh, in her regular life. And 
And so I'm able to take advantage of that skill for uh, what we do with these videos. Of course, we have all of the writing team over on Universe Today. We've got Matt Williams, and we've got Evan Goff, and we've got Dave Dickinson, and we've got Nancy Atkinson, and we've got, uh, man, just a whole bunch of other... Uh, Paul Sutter's been starting to write with us as well. So it's important that when you see anyone who seems to be producing a lot of content, a lot of material, that they could be working hard, and I do, but also we have an amazing team of people who help us make everything that we do. And so thanks to all of the team members. And uh, I'm really glad that you all enjoy what we make. Scott Whedon. Are astronomers being lazy by looking at red dwarfs for planets? As I understand, stars the size of our sun are rare, and planets orbiting them are harder to detect. So is this our only example for life? Shouldn't we quit being lazy and look where it's harder? So if I bought you a telescope, and that telescope was only able to see, say, the moon and Jupiter, and nothing else, and then you took your telescope and you looked at Jupiter with it, and then I walked over and said, you know, what have you got in your telescope? Jupiter again? And you're like, well, that's all this telescope can do. And I'd be like, why are you so lazy, right? Obviously, astronomers push the technology that they have to the absolute limits. And the red dwarfs, the reason why so, much, so many of these planets have been found around red dwarfs is because the mass of the red dwarf and the planets that orbit around it are very close. The size of the red dwarf and the size of the planets that orbit around it are relatively close compared to the size of the of the sun and say even Jupiter or Earth or whatever. And then the last thing is that the distance, the you have a red dwarf star and you have the planets going around the star, they go around very quickly uh, for them to be in the habitable zone. They can go through just a couple of days or weeks for them. So you get regular observations. So it's not that astronomers are being lazy, it's that astronomers are essentially gathering the low-hanging fruit right now with the very limits of the technology that they have. But the whole point of this is to learn what the limits of this technology are and then develop the next generation technology. And so that's what things like TESS are for. TESS is designed to find planets around any kind of star that's relatively close. You can imagine a super version of TESS coming in the future that will be able to find that next level of planets that are, that are farther. And you're going to see over time as the new telescopes come online, there's the 39 meter extremely large telescope. It's going to be able to directly observe planets orbiting other stars. So it's definitely not about people being lazy. It's about better and better technology coming online and astronomers pushing what they have to the very limits and then using that to define and learn the lessons for what should come next. Let me give you one more example, which is LIGO, right? The, the instrument that found gravitational waves. When they built their first version of LIGO, they knew that they probably wouldn't make any detections at all, that it would take a major upgrade for them to get a version of LIGO that would then allow them to detect the gravitational waves. The, but it was about learning and about set, you know, creating the most sensitive instrument that you can and then figuring out what comes next based on that. And that is the process of, of scientific instruments all the time. So uh, you're going to see over time, over the next decades, Earth-sized planets formed around sun-like stars within the habitable zone of, their, you know, of that parent star. But stay tuned. Be patient. We're in the middle of it right now. One, two, die. Why is SLS still alive and a waste of money, time, and labor in the greater picture? It's all about politics and the fear of losing jobs. So they could work on other stuff, maybe a rotating space station, a la 2001. Let NASA and company work on space station stuff and habitats, and let SpaceX, Blue Origin, and company do the heavy lifting. 
first thing that's really important to understand, people have like always say, like, why is NASA working on SLS? They should be working on other stuff. It is the law in the United States for NASA to work on the space launch system. It is Congress has defined it. NASA has to do it, right? It is like as much of the law as as immigration policy and taxes and all these things. Congress said, here's what you're going to do, and NASA has to get that done. But that said, you're seeing this rise over the last few, last decade of these private launch companies like SpaceX, like Blue Origin, who are dramatically lowering costs and redefining how the launch systems are going to be working. And then it takes time for old practice to shift over to new practices. SpaceX had to work really hard to be able to even get an opportunity to be able to bid on military contracts uh, for the U.S. Air Force. And, and they were able to pull that off and, and be able to launch military contracts. And the other thing that's really important to note is that NASA is SpaceX's biggest customer. And so NASA was there to provide the initial funding for SpaceX to get its work underway and help to find an alternative to the SLS. And you can imagine if you know, right now we're just hearing news that the, the Raptor engine is producing higher um, uh, pressures than some of the most dependable rocket engines that have ever been created. Like we are around the corner from this next generation. And I think that when, say, if the, the SpaceX Starship starts launching the super heavy combo at a dramatically lower price than what SLS is going to be able to do. It's going to be really hard to keep going with this system. And the other thing that you mentioned that it's about jobs, it's absolutely about jobs, right? There was the workforce that built the, the, the space shuttle and, and the people who vote <laughs> for Congress people are in every single state of the United States. And so all of these workers are all over the place. And so when Congress decided what their future plan was going to be, they absolutely wanted to make sure that, that they wouldn't be laying off tens of thousands of people instantaneously. So, so they were trying to come up with a way that how do you work with the technology that we already had to develop a new launch system into the future? And is it the greatest idea? No, it's not the most efficient one. It's the one that is clearly some kind of political compromise between all of these parts. And when Blue Origin and, and SpaceX demonstrate that it just doesn't make sense to launch in any other way but on their new launch platforms, then I think we'll see the, the final SLS launch. And I don't think there'll be many of them. I would be surprised if we see more than half a dozen of them launch before these new technologies come online and everyone switches to those. So be patient. We're, we're, it's, we're still in the beginning. Lakeisha Adams. What if the punishment for breaking Prime Directive was your execution, the genocide of your people by the other 4,999 civilizations? I wouldn't break it, especially if it had been broken and the punishment had been carried out before on another now extinct civilization. What you're referring to is called the galactic zoo hypothesis. And the idea is that we here on Earth are a pre-industrial civilization and the rest of the civilizations in the Milky Way are part of some galactic civilization and they have a, you know, a, a prime directive that they won't interfere with our civilization until we reach some level of, of technology. And they've all agreed, all of the civilizations across the entire Milky Way have agreed that nobody ever breaks the secret, ever. And, and 
this is kind of, I mean, essentially, this is a conspiracy theory, right? That, that all the civilizations in the Milky Way have all agreed and not a single one ever breaks the, the agreement and not a single one sneaks one individual onto Earth and reveals the secret. And it also assumes that you're going to have only one galactic civilization and not maybe two or three or four where it totally makes sense for one of them to break the 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 rules and interfere and and bring on a new ally for their political machinations. So I think that the the problem with the galactic zoo hypothesis is just that you're assuming that everyone on 100 to 400 billion stars will agree perfectly on what to do and nobody will break the silence. And that seems a little far-fetched, especially because we can see out into the universe and see you know, if there are Dyson spheres out there or other mega structures, and over time we're going to be able to hear their signals and we're searching. And so it, for me, it just doesn't hold up. But it is one perfectly legitimate response to the Fermi paradox about why we don't see anything out there in space. John Goslin, following on to your answer about what would happen if we discovered life in Europa, are there any surefire chemical or biological characteristics of DNA that would allow us to rule out contamination from the spacecraft or panspermia event, as you say, where an Earth meteorite would have sent ancient life out there? If we ever do find life on another place like Europa or on Mars, the first question that astronomers are going to want to ask is, are we related? Uh, is, it is it even life as we understand it using DNA? And, and if it's not, then you've got this really good evidence. Like Here's this life form that's doing things and it's not based in DNA in any way. It doesn't have cells. Who knows how it works, right? That would be an astonishing discovery and would tell you that we're not related to it or we're so far back, like who knows whether we're related. If it does use DNA, then the next big question is, you're going to want to know, does it have a different chirality? Do the molecules wrap and fold in the same way that all life does here on, on Earth? All life, all the DNA folds up in the, in the exact same way, but you, in theory, it should be able to fold the opposite direction. And so if you've you know, examined the life and found that it did use something like DNA, but it folded in the opposite direction, then that would be evidence. If it does fold in the same way, then you would say, well, where did we separate? When did we have a common ancestor with this life form? And a lot of times you could take two pieces of DNA, you can compare them, and you can figure out how long ago those two life forms had a common ancestor. So for us and chimpanzees, or for us and sea sponges or for us in bacteria, right? You can determine when those divergent paths happened. And so we could, in theory, be able to find out, is, is it a fairly recent uh, departure from us or is it something that is billions of years old? That would be really fascinating as well. But if it turns out it's very recent, then scientists are going to start to think, well, it's probably some kind of contamination from our spacecraft. So if we can get our hands on this stuff and study it in the lab, I think you know scientists would be able to get some pretty good answers for if we're related, when we, do, you know, when we had a common ancestor, and it would tell us so much. Any way this works out, it'll tell us a tremendous amount about life in the universe. Nicholas Bolding, if you could decide specifically what mission you'd want to focus on right now, what would it be? Do you have a top three? Okay, assuming that we're not going to go to any of the places that already have plans in the works, like Europa with Europa Clipper. I would want Titan, 
which is just an amazing place, right? Like it's got mountains made of ice. It's got rivers and seas made of ammonia. Um, it has rain. It has uh, streams. Like, it, like it's just the weirdest place. And then underneath that, there could be a whole other layer of liquid water like Europa or, or Enceladus. So uh, you could go there and you wouldn't have to wear a spacesuit because of the atmospheric pressure. You just have to wear a really thick coat. Uh, has weird organic molecules in on the surface. Like it is a place that we really need to explore, and there are some ideas to do it. But if I had to pick one place that we need to go back with, you know, as much scientific instruments as possible, it would be Titan. Following that, I would say probably uh, Uranus or Neptune. Take your pick. I would probably prefer Neptune because Triton is this really cool world with this cool moon where they've seen uh, geysers on it, hints of geysers like they've seen on Enceladus and, and Europa. So I would love to go back to both of those planets, either one, and study them and their moons. And then the last one is Venus, which we've done some exploration, but we haven't done a really great job of exploration. And when you think about how much infrastructure there is at Mars, there's really not very much at Venus. And it's a place I would love for us to be able to go back and study very deeply, do very detailed surface scans, try to figure out a way to get a rover, send balloons that'll go into the atmosphere and just study this world. It is the only place in the solar system that has the same gravity as Earth. If you were up in the high atmosphere of, of Venus, you would have the same temperature and air pressure as you do on Earth. You wouldn't even need to wear a thick coat, right? You would just have to, and you wouldn't have to wear a spacesuit. You would just have to be breathing oxygen because the atmosphere is, is made of carbon dioxide. So I would love to go to Venus. So Titan, Uranus or Neptune, uh, let's say Neptune and Venus. Let's go to all of those places. Base Dode. Why is China on the moon? Is it for mining or just politics? Yeah, I saw when the Chinese put their lander on the far side of the moon, it created a ripple in the conspiracy theorists about that they're going to mine helium-3 or something like that, which in theory, in the far, far future, if we figure out how to make fusion work, then maybe we can make helium fusion work, but we are very, very far away from that. So. So, like, why is China going to the moon, right? I think it's two reasons. It's the reason why the United States and, and, and the Soviets were racing to get to the moon, which is to demonstrate to the world that you are a player, that you have the ability to send humans to the moon. That's a big thing. There's only one nation in the history of mankind has ever been able to pull this off when, if and when the Chinese are able to do it as well. Now you'll have two, right? It'll be, they'll be... And then if they could do things that the Americans have never done, like maybe be the first people to set foot on Mars, well, now, now you're the leader, right? So, it's the, so that's this global, this bragging rights. And I think that's pretty significant. I, I love if Canada put humans on the surface of the moon. I'd feel pretty proud of us. Um, as opposed to, I mean, we, we build a lot of great arms, but it would be cool to have one of those arms be on the moon. But anyway, so that's the first one. And the second reason, of course, is that the future of mankind is about harnessing resources from space. 
that space is the ultimate high ground. You want to be able to extract asteroids. You want to be able to harvest from comets. You want to be able to live and work and be able to survive in, in space for long periods of time. And the only way to do that is to do it. And so the Chinese are developing the technology to help them prospect for search for uh, minerals and materials on the moon, to be able to just learn the techniques, to be able to handle being out in space for longer periods of time. And so you can imagine the more you learn, the better you get at this, the more ideas become more feasible. And you can imagine 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years down the road, they're going to be more and more comfortable, have more and more infrastructure in space. So bragging rights and the future resource utilization of space. So I guess it's both of what you said. Soren Sorensen. Regarding the question on light pushing a laser array, let's say we encapsulated the sun in a sphere with a hole on one side. Would the light push the sun and would it be by any significant amount? Right, you are describing a megastructure known as a Shkadov thruster. And the idea is, and it's not exactly what you're proposing, but if you just like came up with this on your own, kudos, that's awesome. So what you do is you have a star and you build a half shell around the star made of some kind of reflective material, but something that has a lot of heft to it, some mass, right? And so what's going to happen is the star is going to be firing out its photons of light. They're going to be bouncing off of this shell like a solar sail, and they're going to be pushing the shell away. But the shell is going to have gravity. And so the shell is going to be pulling on the sun with its gravity in the same way that the sun is going to be pulling on the shell with its gravity, right? But the sun is also pushing the shell away. And what this does is this causes the star to follow the shell around in space. And over the, it'll take a long time, but if you keep this thing running for billions of years, you can literally move stars anywhere you want in the entire Milky Way. And so one of the ideas is that in the far, you know, we would expect to see really advanced civilizations using these Shkadov thrusters to reorganize all of the stars of their galaxy into some formation that makes a lot of sense for energy extraction or, or what have you. And so, and they would give off a fairly telltale signature. And so astronomers have done surveys looking for galaxies that have been rearranged by some really powerful civilization. Spoiler alert, they haven't found one yet. So, uh, but it's a great idea. And so congrats for thinking that up. Fugel. What would it take to get HD footage streaming from deep space? For example, with Mars orbiters and landers, I understand why it's very low quality for the moment due to bandwidth rather than the imaging hardware. Or it could be high quality, but it takes a week to send. But would there be any way to stream at, say, 720p from Mars or greater ranges, for example, via laser communications relay? Thanks. Yeah, people are always asking, like, where's the high resolution video from Mars, right? I don't believe in space because I haven't seen HD video. But the reality, of course, is that that high-speed video isn't that useful to scientists. What's useful is a enormous CCD array that is taking very high-resolution black-and-white images uh, with as many pixels as they can get their hands on and then transmitting that data back to Earth. And so if you ask a scientist, like, would you rather have a 720p image, which is a very low-resolution, what is it, uh, 720 by 1280. I forget what exactly what the number is. Very low resolution, as opposed to say this camera has a I forget what it is 19 megapixels. Uh, you can imagine a scientific instrument on a future rover being dozens of pixels. Some of the biggest telescopes out there 
are hundreds of megapixels, right? Uh, so, so it's about the resolution, uh, then you know, the amount of pixels, the amount of 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 data that you can send back. And so, video, just like sending the same frame again and again and again, isn't that isn't that useful? And as you said, it's incredibly bandwidth intensive. If you want to be able to send data back to Earth, you've got to fire, you've got to, you know, use your transmitter, you've got to have an enormous 90 meter dish on Earth that's ca- ga- gathering stuff up. When you think about what happened with New Horizons at, uh, at MU69, right, it's taking months for each individual picture, photograph, to come back to Earth. So I can't imagine any situation where astronomers would prefer to have high-def video and unfortunately just kind of like giving people something really cool to watch would meet that criteria for them. That said, I've seen some great video people have stitched together images, you know, individual photographs, and to make a scene that sort of looks like high-def video because it's, it's time-lapse, time-lapse images. I've seen like dust devils flying around on Mars or, or uh, Cassini flying over the rings of Saturn or orbits of planets and things like that done as high-def video. We use them all the time in our thing, but it's we're stitching together time-lapse as opposed to a camera that's just recording. But I'm sure in the future, when there's more infrastructure on Mars, someone's absolutely going to turn a high-speed video camera on something that's happening and record the video and send it back to Earth. And But in, until we've got more infrastructure, more data, we have to work with what we've got. Nimaikun. If a gas giant has its atmosphere stripped away, would its remaining rocky core be considered a rocky planet or not the same? That's a great question, and it's time to call in another special guest answer. This time we got Ryan McDonald, who is an expert in exoplanetary atmospheres, and he is going to answer your question. And of course, Ryan's got his own YouTube channel. You should totally check it out. I'll put a link here, a link in the show notes, and I hope you really enjoy his answer. So this is a fantastic question. So according to what's called the core accretion theory of planet formation, deep inside the gas giants like Jupiter and Neptune, there should be a massive core composed of a mixture of rocky material, metals, and particularly in the case of Neptune, icy material. Models suggest that the core of Neptune is around the same mass as the Earth. So it's interesting to wonder if we were to strip away the entire atmosphere of Neptune would what is left resemble an Earth-like planet? So whilst Neptune, fortunately, will not be having its atmosphere taken away anytime soon, many of the close-in giant exoplanets that have been discovered over the last 25 years orbit so close to their star that they only take a few days. In such close-in orbits, they are subjected to an extreme amount of high-energy X-ray and ultraviolet radiation capable of blasting away large parts of their atmospheres. And we've already seen evidence of this occurring on many exoplanets. In fact, as far back as 2003, the Hubble Space Telescope observed a large cloud of hydrogen gas surrounding the hot Jupiter HD 209458b. From observing this gas, it was estimated that this planet is losing thousands of tons of material every second. But because hot Jupiters are so massive, even over many, many billions of years, they are still capable of holding on to most of their atmosphere. But things get more interesting for lower mass giant planets. If you were to take a planet with a hydrogen and helium atmosphere, roughly twice the size of the Earth, 
and place it in an orbit where it receives over 10 times the amount of radiation that the Earth receives from the Sun, this planet would lose the majority of its atmosphere over just 100 million years, leaving behind a bare rocky core. And evidence of this process happening is already being discovered just in the last two years. In 2017, a team led by Benjamin Fulton from the California Institute of Technology took measurements of the sizes of over 2,000 exoplanets from the Kepler Space Telescope and noticed something very peculiar. Namely, there is a distinct lack of planets around 1.8 times the size of the Earth, with orbits taking less than 100 days. There are many planets with larger radii, many planets that are smaller, but there seems to be a distinct gap in the distribution of planets here. This was the discovery of what is now called the Evaporation Valley, namely that there are two distinct populations of small planets, those that are large enough to hold on to their atmospheres, that we call sub-Neptunes, and planets which are too small to hold on to their atmospheres and instead have it stripped away, leaving just a bare rocky core. So already the takeaway conclusion is that many of the super-Earths detected by the Kepler Space Telescope today may simply be the rocky cores of gas giants that strayed a little too close to their parent star. Thanks a lot, Ryan. That was awesome. Uh, great to have an expert answer a question uh, in their field of expertise. And again, Ryan's got his own channel. To you should totally go and, and check it out. I've been really enjoying having all of these guest answers, and I know you know, you're all getting a chance to see some other YouTube channels that maybe you haven't seen from some lesser known people. And uh, so if you have some, some YouTubers who do space related stuff, uh, let me know. And I would love to be able to feature some of them in a future question show. All right, we'll see you all next week.